from the very first days when we enter this world. We don't realize it, but we're exposed to leadership. Although you might not consider it that way, our mothers are the very first leaders we know. They lead us with love. To lead is to serve, and mothers who love their children without qualification are in some ways slaves to their children. Subservient not in the sense of the work that goes into tending to their children's needs, although that is a thing, but slaves to the love that they instinctively feel. Mothers are drawn to be servant leaders. They teach us what we need to know to make our way in the world with as much tenderness and interest as they take on the rigors and responsibilities of parenthood. They try to protect us from harm and hurt feelings, shielding us from as much pain as they can. But they know that every one of us, if we care about someone deeply enough, will inevitably experience grief that can tear us down. Grief is a process, one that takes different paths for all of us. And as leaders, whether we find them in our family, in a religious establishment, or on a Zoom call, can help us manage our grief as we take the steps to reassemble. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore some of the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders wherever we find them in our lives. Thank you so much for considering this show, this hour, worthy of your time. And it's my hope that we can provide the quality of conversation that keeps you coming back. We do these shows live each week on Twitter, and then, then we package them up later as a podcast so you can tune into the Timeless Leadership Podcast when time allows. And the bonus of being here live is you get to ask questions if you are interested in the subject or want to speak with our guest. And please follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I write about these topics. This week, our topic is grief. If your mom is dead, is she still your mom? At 25, nearly two decades after losing her mother to breast cancer as a little girl, an accident on a downtown street unleashed startling emotional reactions in Peg Conway. And this question starts to percolate. In her book, The Art of Reassembly, a memoir of early mother loss and after grief, Peg explores her emotional journey. She comes to understand that what she is experiencing is long-buried childhood grief. And as she marries and becomes a mother herself, Peg's intense feelings challenge her to offer herself compassion. Gradually, she confronts growing up surrounded by silence in a family that moved on from sorrow and caused her to suppress her mother's memory for far too long. Ultimately, after excavating all the layers, Peg finds her mom again 
and in the process discovers the truth, no matter how painful, heals. Peg Conway earned a master's in journalism and worked in corporate communications before focusing on raising her family. Now, she writes and practices energy healing in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she also volunteers at a children's grief center. Her essays have appeared in The Good Men Project, Austin Fit Magazine, and Manifest Station. Peg offers healing touch sessions that serve as an oasis for clients, where together, they create inner calm. Whether they're coping with everyday stresses or a significant life event, clients leave Peg's Healing Touch appointments feeling calm and peaceful with greater clarity of mind. Peg lives in a village just outside of Cincinnati where she's surrounded by mature trees and green space but can drive downtown in 20 minutes. Peg enjoys playing the piano visiting museums, and walking her rescue beagle mix, Sadie. Peg, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I mean, they're, they're your words, really, and I have to be honest with you. This, this is the first time we've taken on a memoir as a topic on uh, the show. You know, we, we talk about leadership, which tends to really be about business, but I saw something in your book and certainly in your writing that stood out to me. Uh, it, it was, I, I think you just, you, you did such a wonderful job bringing the reader into your world. And to me, leadership is wherever we can find it. And, and I was just, I was inspired by what you wrote. So I wonder if you could share with us what inspired you to write it in the first place. Sure. Well, the writing process was not initially intended to be like writing a book process. Writing is something I mean, I've been writing all my life and I've, I've been a professional writer, but I also use writing as a personal reflective tool. And so as part of my awakening in my, you know, young adult years and beyond, you know, I would write how I felt. I would write memories. I would, I, I wrote almost as an interrogation, like, what does this mean? And what, why did this happen kind of thing? And then about five years ago, I really, I got interested in thinking, well, maybe this, this story is a, this is something that needs to be out in the world. Cause there is a difference between writing that you do for yourself and writing that you present publicly as a story, you know, for other people to under, to enter into. And I think what happened was, at that later stage in my life, um, as my dad and stepmother were aging and entering their elder years, and I was, you know, back in close connection with them um, into their daily life and assisting them, a lot of old dynamics resurfaced yet again. And that was very interesting to me that, you know, because I think after the initial out, outflowing in my early mother, young adulthood, early motherhood into my late 30s, I was like, well, okay, I think that's done now. I've processed that grief that was long buried. But then when things kept coming back again, it made me realize this is a spiral. This is not a linear process. And so that that made me interested in in writing about it in a more formal way. Hmm. Well, and the the amount of of self-reflection that you've done just over the years is remarkable. And I note that uh, in various portions of your story, you, you pull out a journal that you keep with you, you know, the, this this journal that you were, uh, you know, kind of chronicling uh, these thoughts along the way for yourself, as you say. Um, and yet, it seemed to me that early on in your childhood, when you were, quote unquote, responsible girl, mm-hmm. you didn't have time to be reflective. You you didn't have time to, to mourn, really. Um, how, how did you make that transition from responsible girl to, well, I, I, the other, the other term you use, grieving is, person, a, a grieving person, right? And then you've got yeah. inner lost girl, right? So there, there's, right. there's a few different personas here. Can, can you describe that journey a little bit? Sure. Uh, responsible girl really was a persona that I believe that I adopted in response to the circumstances. You know, I'm one of four 
four children at the time that my mom died. It was the third of fourth of the four children. And I, I mean, I think it was my way of kind of coping with anxiety and coping with loss to kind of take control of my environment as much as possible. And I think I have a natural bent toward that anyway. Um, but in my 20s, as you mentioned in the introduction, my, my friend was uh, hit by a car on a downtown street after I had just dropped her off by her office building. And I did not actually directly witness the accident, but I was present on the scene, you know, kind of not seeing it, but right there, heard it. And that, fortunately, she has fully recovered. Um, that event jarred loose something inside me. And I, I really was, I became more emotional about things. I mean, I, I wasn't like I was unfeeling before, but in the aftermath of my friend being injured, I real I was weepy and I was anxious and I didn't have much appetite. I lost some weight and I just really felt unglued and, and empty inside and in a way that was familiar, but not, I was cur- I didn't really understand it until finally it dawned on me. This is how I felt when I was a child after my mom died. Mm. And then I began to ask myself, am I grieving? Is this what grief is like? And so I, again, I think I have a 10, I have a characteristic of just being kind of curious about myself, cur- and that it really developed in that time period. Like, wow, I am seeing myself differently than I used to be. I used to think of myself as in control and on top of things. And now I'm feeling vulnerable and unglued. What is this? How can this be? And it, it really launched me into a very, what became a very long process, an ongoing process. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because your, your dad, when you were still young, remarried, right? I guess it was about five years after your mom passed away. Yes, it was and it, it seemed like he found, you know, a wonderful wife who was interested in the children, carrying on, um, you know, the things that a mom would do with a daughter. And, and yet there, there was something missing there, wasn't there? Yes. There, my stepmother really fulfilled a lot of important roles in my life. I have to give her credit where it's due. A lot of the things that motherless women feel they lack as far as like, you know, the I call it the female curriculum, like, you know, about shopping and makeup and giving a party or, you know, different things like that. I really had a, a strong role model in her and she was very, you know, nurturing toward me in those settings. But the culture of my family and the culture of the time, we didn't really, we just sort of became a new family. Like we, I talk about it as you know, turning a new chapter where it's a happy ending. We turned over a new late page and entered this new story where we're a, a mom or an intact family again of sorts. My, my dad and stepmother had another child and we didn't really look back and we didn't, we didn't bring my mom forward either, which she was just sort of, I mean, it was like we never mentioned her and we certainly still saw her relatives, but not as much. And so the message that I intuited was, okay, we're, we're moving on again. And so when I began grieving, I really had to dig very deep to get back to, well, who was my mom really? And mm. what, what, what happened? And it was just a lot of, just a lot unsaid. And I, I think that was, I know that that was very common in that era of why I've interacted with a lot of other women who lost mothers in the, like the 1960s, 70s and 80s. And the lack of conversation and the lack of, of openly remembering is is just very characteristic mm. of that era. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know you are a professional communicator, um, like I am. And th- there's a saying that uh, I've I've heard bandied about in our profession that everything communicates. And there are things that we say, things that we do, things that we display that all make a statement in one way or another. And one of the things that struck me, um, not quite as deeply as it did you, but the way you conveyed it, was when, when you had this conversation with your dad and stepmom that she wanted to adopt you, you and your, your younger siblings, mm-hmm. um, that seems like a natural thing. We see a lot of families where there is a remarriage after a death at the, or, or even after a divorce where the kids are adopted. But the thing here was they we're going to change or did change your birth certificate so that your mom's name 
your actual mom's name didn't appear on it anymore. And that, to me, seemed like such a drastic thing. And it, Well, that was not their choice. That's the adoption law. Oh I mean, that's, that's what's required. But that, that has to leave an emotional scar over so many people that have to go through that, that are still grieving for their parents. Oh, I, yes, I imagine so. And even adoptees in general. I mean, the fact that records are not open for so many people, it really does have, I mean, I have a, a really strong resonance with stories of adoptees looking for their origins. I mean, my, obviously, I knew a lot about my origins. It wasn't quite the same thing. But that sense of who am I and who are my, what, where did I come from, who am I related to, um, is very is very potent questions, very yeah. important. And, you know, even in something as uh, seemingly uh, benign as being on the phone with a customer service rep and they say, what's your mother's maiden name? Yes. I mean, even that stops you, gives you pause, and actually it, it rips the Band-Aid off in some ways and, and reignites some of that grief. It does. It really raises a lot of questions. And I think I think I had become so accustomed to my stepmother being my mother that, you know, in my early 40s when I began to really investigate, like think about this differently, I was like, but she really isn't my – I mean, she is in certain ways, and legally the document says she is. But that's not exactly true, and I don't know. I I think there's just a lot of feelings that come up when you start asking those kinds of questions. But they're good questions. (laughs) They are. Well, I mean, this is this is the thing. You you've been willing to um, investigate this yourself with your family with and and they've been open to uh, to talking with you about it as well, which I think is wonderful. And and to me, it, it bumps up against I think what we're all going through right now that there is some level of grief during this pandemic, uh, whether we've lost a family member, whether we've lost a work situation, whether we uh, simply miss seeing people, there's a lot of grief in the world right now. So as people are struggling with all kinds of grief every day, what are some steps that you can recommend that people take to begin to get their heads around it? Well, I think just that you, just what you've said to start with, that there really is a lot of grief all around us. And it's not so obvious. You know, when someone has died, then you, you know, you acknowledge that people have had a loss and there's, you know, often practices and rituals that occur around that time. But the loss goes on and on. And that's a spe- very specific kind of loss. But when life has changed significantly in weird ways that are even hard sometimes to name. Like we don't socialize the same way. We don't see people the same way. Um, That's really vague, but it still lives in us. And I think one of the things that I've come to understand from my personal experience and through my energy healing studies is all that lives inside our bodies. That's not just, we can't just we can try to, we do shut it down and sometimes that serves a purpose, but it, it's still there. And, and to the extent that we can just acknowledge, I have these feelings of grief or, and it doesn't always manifest like you might think it might be, um, you know, lots of times people get very agitated or they get very angry whenever I, when I see the news coverage about, you know, how people are, screaming at the people in the takeout line or they're being horrible to servers or workers in stores. I mean, to me, that is classic. Like these people are, are, have many emotions, probably not only grief, but grief is definitely in the mix of outbursts and annoyance and irritability. I mean, that it's just a really clear sign that can go unnoticed. Yeah. I, Believe me, I, I think that's the, kind of the second pandemic. You know, we've got the a viral pandemic, but we've got a grief pandemic that, you know, is, as you say, giving rise to anger and, and everything we're seeing every day. That's uh, it's really frustrating. Um, one of the, the, the phrases you used early on in the book, Peg, was, my fear existed as a void. What did you mean by that? I think I, I, would, I meant that I couldn't access it. It was, I felt really scared in an, of an em, that there was an emptiness. The, the, the space that my mom had occupied, the, the, the scaffolding that that provided to my life, I just had no idea how, how life would go on 
without that. I didn't, at the time, I didn't know anybody that ever lost their mother. I didn't even, at that time, I don't think I even knew anyone who was divorced. We grew up in a Catholic setting. Um, So it just opened up in this expansive way that felt very frightening. But I didn't, I didn't even know how to go toward it. I didn't know how to name it or talk about it or understand it. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned feeling, you know, when, when you returned to school after your mom's funeral, you know, in the days and weeks that followed, you felt um, in some way, you, you loved it and loathed it, right? You were right. you were kind of called out for a special reason. There was special attention granted to you, but at the same time, you felt different than everyone else and, and almost like, like you were out of place. Right. And that, I want to emphasize that is a really common experience of bereaved children. Um, I learned that as I became a facilitator for a children's grief center that children who have lost, experienced a loss often feel very different from their peers because in a sense, they've learned something that kids don't always learn, that life can change on a dime or that, you know, you can lose people that you love. And so they, they kind of gain a more mature awareness early. Yeah. And that, that can make you feel different from your peers. Yeah. And this this notion of, of losing your mother, I mean, whether it happens when you're seven or when you're 47, there, there's still a, a hole there. I mean, we, we still feel like we're, we're orphans uh, in some ways, don't we? Yes, I have. Uh, yes, I've experienced parent loss as an adult and parent loss as a child. It's it's There's a significant difference for a child because of the developmental phases that they will be without their parent. But the loss of a loss of a mother is really profound for everybody, for sure. Yeah. Peg, I, I wondered if you would read an excerpt from your book. I don't know if you have it handy. I do. I, do you have a request? I do have a request. Um, the That's la- good. The last paragraph on page 223. Okay, so this is actually uh, near the end of the book. Um, My husband and I are at the cemetery uh, visiting all of my parents' graves, my mom and my dad and my stepmother. And so it's kind of a a reflection on all of that. And and just to be clear, your, your dad and stepmother were buried in one plot and your mom was some distance away at another plot. That is correct. That is correct. My dad bought a double plot when she died, but he was only 39 years old. And so then he subsequently remarried, and they bought a different double plot, and presumably one of my siblings will be buried next to my mom. Um, that was a very jarring and hurtful kind of realization. But as we strolled back to the car, circling around via the road this time, the fact of distance between their graves requiring movement from one to another suddenly seemed quite fitting. To understand my loss in its many facets and then reassemble my story had required me to journey across a wide chasm and of necessity to accept a certain lasting gap in the narrative. Depending on the moment or the day, this breach could trigger sadness, anger, or shame in any combination. I had claimed these emotions not only as ongoing threads in my story, but also as valued parts of myself. Over many years, I had worked and worked them until they wove together, if not perfectly, at least well enough, discovering along the way that I would rather live this truth than pretend anything else. Excavating my past to reconstruct a narrative for the present would continue, I was certain, even as the future was already arriving, because early loss never stops echoing. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Peg. You know, what's, what stands out to me there is, is the work that it takes to do this. And in this day and age, when we are so easily distracted, when we can sit and scroll on our phones all day long, uh, whether it's through Instagram or TikTok or simply playing a crossword or words with friends, uh, we, we tend to pull ourselves away from this kind of hard work that needs to be done to get through some of these issues that we have to grapple with. And, and we seem to be just skating around on the surface. What would you recommend to people who are having a hard time pulling themselves away from just the distractions of everyday life to, 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 to really get a little deeper into this? 
Well, I think I would say that sometimes people aren't ready. And so if, if maybe the distractions are helping them in a way at given where, wherever they're at in their journey, um, numbing is a reaction to stress and sorrow. Um, but once, once someone is maybe having an inkling that mm, I, maybe I need to do something different. This is not helping me. This is, you know, gain an awareness that maybe I need to change my approach. Um, I think anything that is very like tactile, like walking outside or mm. journaling or drawing or, you know, just activity of some kind, working in the yard, just, just bringing yourself back to the physical present or med, you know, if you like people, some people like to do yoga, other forms of body movement, um, meditative breathing exercises, especially that emphasize a lengthier exhale that creates a relaxation response in the body. It's to me, it's all about becoming present in the moment. And for me, those are always body centered sensory kinds of activities. Yeah. Yeah, boy. And, and that fits completely with, uh, you know, how you, you practice uh, healing touch sessions now with, uh, with your clients. I think that's a, a wonderful connection there. That has been a real, a real rewarding um, journey and practice. I, I kind of fell into it almost not accidentally, but just kind of out of curiosity, and because I have ha- I have friends who have been involved in that work for many years, and after my kids were gone to college, I had some time to pursue different interests, and I real I just really loved it. I just really just kept taking step after step, and finally realized, hey, I'm going to get this credential. That's great. That is great. And it does dovetail with my grief journey in the sense of the body awareness and the and the processing and allowing of emotions and cultivating self-compassion. And so I I really do feel like I'm paying forward in a certain way too. Yeah. You know, Peg, uh, when you, when you talk about the, the this tactile stuff, doing things that are analog rather than digital it's almost ironic that you know we're in an age now over the last two years where we've all had to connect over video calls and uh, other electronic media to stay connected and we haven't been able to see everyone the same way we have i mean that that in itself must be um adding to some of the grief that people are trying to overcome that's that is a very interesting juxtaposition isn't it and yet I think the virtual space, in a way, has given us a different kind of access to our own experience because we don't have to get dressed up and leave the house and, and put on that public persona. We can be in our pajamas or just in jeans on the bottom and a nice shirt on top <laughs> to appear on the screen. In a sense, that gives us more connection to ourselves. Yeah, this is why this is an audio program, see. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so I am properly dressed in case it was video also. This is, this is my first uh, Twitter spaces. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, that, that very act of self-care, whether it's through makeup or clothing or um, <laughs> just just putting on pants some days, I mean that there's there's a step in that 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 is uh, that that accesses some of our grief as well. Even even if we don't feel like we have to, just going through those motions does help. That yes, there's definitely value in structure and routine. That yeah, I mean we we're seeing there yeah there's a there's a plus and minus on everything, but we've certainly been jarred out of our comfort comfort zones the past two years. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And that in itself can elicit that can elicit emotions that haven't been examined. Just the the necessity of having to to do things a different way and having loss of access to familiar rituals of you know I I, I think of my I have some friends different friends who live alone and working from home all day alone they miss going out to lunch. They miss yeah. interacting with people over around the coffee machine. And those little things are not so little. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, one of, one of the aspects I've, I've read about uh, that, that's happened over the past couple of years is as, you know, offices have shut down, as people have missed those in-person opportunities, there have also been uh, layoffs. You know, you hear about that horrific layoff a couple of weeks ago by the Better.com CEO who laid off 900 employees on a Zoom call that was three minutes long. Mm. Um, you know, you talk about saddling them with with grief uh, going into the holidays. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, we just found out this week that he only wanted to give them one week's worth of severance pay after that, too. Um, Yikes. Thoroughly horrible human being. Um, but... But whether it's that or this great resignation that we're hearing about, there are a lot of people who are kind of left on on teams and they're looking around and they have uh, what I've been reading about is called survival or survivor's guilt. Mm. I, and I, I wonder if, if you could comment on that and it, from your own experience, you know, losing your mother when you were only seven, w- was there any aspect of survivor's guilt that, racked you and your family? That's a really interesting question. I guess I would say that, you know, that my some of my adult feelings kind of after realizing the full, full impact of the adoption and the change in my birth certificate, there was, there's not, the guilt is, is certainly an aspect of realizing my mother's erasure. I mean, I wasn't I mean, I was a child. I real one of my big, you know, realizations and self affirmations is I was a child. I did not have control over what happened, and the adults in my life were doing the best they can. You know, all those things are true at once. Um, I think one of the big learnings that I've had in my adult grief journey is, um, I think, in the book I describe in detail, attending um, a motherless daughters retreat led by Hope Edelman where I had the opportunity to spend several days with other women who had lost their mothers young and how powerful it was to have my experience mirrored back to me. I had never, ever had that experience before. And one of the things we talk about a lot in the motherless daughters community is how multiple things can be true at once. It can be Mm. sad, you know, in terms of survivor's guilt, you know, it's sad for the, it's very sad that people have lost their jobs, especially at the holidays. And it's very hard to be the one left behind feeling like, oh, I've, I've dodged that experience. And you can be grateful to still have your job because you need to support your family. Like all of those things can be true at once. And we can, fe- you know, you, you can feel them all and don't have to choose between them. In fact, I was laughing with my one of my siblings um, recently about talking about my book that one of the things that was not present in our family, it was like you had to be happy. You couldn't be sad. It, it wasn't, we couldn't be sad about our mom and move on. We were moving on and wouldn't be sad. You know, it was like this binary yeah. that isn't really helpful. And so I think I would say to survivor, people experiencing survivor's guilt, that it's okay to feel conflicting feelings. It's okay to feel sad and glad at the same time. I think that is such an important point, Peg, because... I think we're we're back to being a binary society where you know you're either for me or against me. You're either on this well, side or this that side. Well, this is very true. Yeah, this is very very true. And it's, so, and it's so powerful to be able to hold both of those emotions, both of those thoughts, or or multiple uh, emotions and thoughts in your in your head and in your heart at the same time. It's very gentle. It can. It's a way of being very gentle with yourself, like because it's so easy when you know you're feeling bad. You know you can feel bad about yourself because you feel you can just get into a lot of self recrimination is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And by opening up the, the floor to many different emotions at once, it's a way of saying I'm really okay as I am. I'm it's okay that I feel upset and grateful. I can feel sad and grateful on the same day at yeah. the same time. They're yeah. all true. And, you know, it, it connects kind of with, with the relationship you had with your stepmom, Ag, and, and you refer to yourself as Ag's daughter in, in certain roles. Uh, you, you, it, it was kind of a, uh, well, it, it was a fraught relationship. I mean, there was... There I was, think fraught is a very good word. Yeah, thank you. Um, there was love there, obviously, and, and, you know, one of her final phrases to you is that, I want to love you. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, there was a lot of hurt, a lot of pain that went on. Not not that it was necessarily intentional, but it, it still hurt. And, I mean, th- this is part of the, the journey you go on, trying to square the, the, the good and the bad in the relationship and uh, 
ultimately weigh it out in the end. Right, right. Yes, I would. The, the holding the multiple truths with my stepmother has definitely been part of my my process and journey, and really acknowledging the gifts that she brought to my life, and naming the harms or the the detriments that that came about as well. And it's really decisions that she and my dad made together. I mean, I don't, I can't, I don't want to vilify her un- sure. unfairly. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, relatives or, you know, people from that generation, as you say, didn't want to talk about those things. And, and the next generation comes along and we're trying to resolve these feelings. We're trying to, to work through some of the pain, some of the hurt, some of the love. Um, how, how do you approach that when someone simply isn't willing to sit down and, and take into account how you feel about something? That is a really hard hard place to be in. I think ultimately what it comes round to is you can't make somebody do something they don't want to do and you can't make them be who you want them to be for you. And so you're left with offering compassion to yourself and hoping that that that's going to be enough and getting support from other people who do support you and understand and see you. Um, that concept of being seen is something I, I resonate with a lot. Um, when someone doesn't understand what I'm going through, I, I can, it, I describe it sometimes as I don't, I feel unseen. Yeah. And it's, it's a very painful place to begin. It is. It is. And uh, I mean, it's hard because I mean, everybody's got a different solution for it. I mean, my own mom, um, had a very, uh, toxic mother. Um, who, who really didn't love her. And, and ultimately, at some point in her adult life, she had to decide, I need to separate myself from these people because there's more harm than good that's coming from associating with them, even though they're my relatives, my blood yes. relatives. How, how do you coach someone or, or help someone who is grappling with this this conflict of, they're my family, I love them, but they're, they're, they're toxic? Well, obviously that's a very individual situation, but I certainly acknowledge that that has to, that that, that is a legitimate course of action and justified in, in many cases, perhaps. I think it comes down to a really deep discernment and, and self-reflection of, if, am I valuing myself? What, what would valuing myself and what, and nurturing myself in this situation look like? Cause sometimes, you know, somebody, people can choose different things in the same situation. Two different people would make different choices. And that's, you know, that's just how life is. Mm-hmm. But coming to that place of the most self, what would be a nurturing, more nurturing way to view this situation? What would be a more nurturing way to handle myself in this situation? And for some people, it, it the choice to say, I need to cut off contact with you. I mean, that, that happens and it, it's sad, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. And, you know, in, in some ways, th- there's another uh, relationship that you need to grieve over that, you know, the, Absolutely. The, the person may not be dead, but the relationship uh, in some ways is. Very much so. And and honoring that as, as a grief. Um, one of the things that is very, became very important to me over my life of grief is creating little gestures and rituals to mark occasions and things that are you know, may not seem like a big deal to other people, but, but to me, they are like transitions when my kids would leave for college and come home and mm. even you know, death anniversaries, things like that. And often I don't plan ahead. I don't say, Oh, it's this occasion coming up, my mom's death anniversary or my mom's birthday or something like that. But I'll find myself, Oh, it's, it's tomorrow. What do I want to do? Oh, I think I'll do this. It's mm. going to be a nice day. Let's go to the cemetery or, um, often actually writing becomes a ritual for me too. Like hmm. if with difficult, and I think when in the period of time where I was caring for my, um, elderly parents, and that was very stressful for me, um, writing about it became like a ritual of, okay, I'm, it's self-nurturing, I'm processing, I'm releasing stress and emotions. And so then it, it takes a tangible form. And in a way, maybe the book itself is a bit, was a bit of served that purpose too. Yeah. I, I would imagine it was, uh, it was very cathartic to, uh, to get that out there. 
Laura, you uh, would like to join the conversation. Welcome to Timeless Leadership, Laura. Hi. Hi, Scott. And uh, this has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Peg. Um, I, you know, I want to revisit one of the things that you brought up earlier, which is this idea of, you know, how we've been kind of cut off from one another. We're living in a, in a, <clears throat> you know, a, a remote or virtual world. Um, and, you know, when you're actually in and amongst people, I had recently this past weekend, uh, attended a funeral for the first time in over two years because of the pandemic and I was physically at it. And one of the things I always observe when you, when a a funeral has ended and you are among loved ones and people who loved the person who has passed for several, you know, several days in in a row. And you, I remember, you know, this was years ago at, at, at a, funeral of a friend's mother who had had an extended uh, illness with brain cancer, literally standing in the parking lot at the funeral home, looking at one another and saying, how do I say this out loud? This has actually been nice to be with all of you. Mm. And, you know, the last uh, three days, this weekend with uh, this family of a person who died too young, um, and we were all together in strangers until we had met each other. And now there's this moment where you have a shared experience, a shared lived experience, um, and you're sharing how this person impacted your life. And you don't have that when you are virtual. Um, you, you can really, I think, in some ways only have that moment when you're with one another. And I agree with you, Peg, that sometimes the transaction uh, can move to a more uh, a more full experience. Um, you know, some people right now it's not safe for them to be out of their house, and they need to be there to have some closure. Closure is just so important in all of this. Um, and and I don't know if I necessarily have a question, but I have more of a point of these lived experiences actually help you in that grieving process mm-hmm. and and provide human connection where one wasn't. And when I was leaving this uh, the weekend and I shared my information with brothers of the deceased and like we don't know each other, but here's my information. Please know that I am here and this is how to find me. And, you know, those are those experiences. And I just think that in humanity, as we are trying to celebrate humanity in any way we can, we need to be mindful of the fact that we we deserve to love one another. We deserve to feel that we loved one another. And the people who have passed deserve that love as well. So that's kind of my, my thoughts right now. Yes, I would, I would resonate. I strongly resonate with what you said. I think when we were talking about the virtual situation and the pros and cons and benefits and uh, negatives, we were thinking, I think we were in the context of a work situation. Yep. The more, the morning space, the lack of con, the, the, the necessity and the benefits of being together are, are, are simply not achieved in the virtual space. I, I happen to believe it's better to do something than nothing. And I think it's really important to be as creative as possible to allow for safe togetherness. Um, but you're right. That is, that is really a hardship in this, this life we're living now. Yep, absolutely. Um, and uh, so thank you guys for this. And, and it was a really important conversation. So thank you. Thanks for joining in. Laura, thanks for your comment. Always good to have you part of uh, the conversation here. Looks like we have uh, another request from uh, Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to Timeless Leadership with Peg Conway. Thank you. Um, Well, I just stumbled upon your conversation. Um, Earlier this year, my dad passed away. And um, just a few weeks ago, my brother did. I'm sorry. um, You know, oh gosh. Um, Take your time. Um, what the speaker said about having little rituals really did resonate with me because that's where I'm at now. You know, mm. where you, you got to 
do something, you know, and um, I did write something also because it was, uh, I have had grief my entire life. Um, I've lost four brothers and both my parents now. Mm. And um, so I, I spent the last week thinking about, you know, how do we, how do I, what do I do now? You know, I'm an only person, I still have other siblings, but, you know, I'm, I'm a person who has lost so much. Mm-hmm. And it's, so I just wanted to say thank you for, um, I don't know how I found your conversation, but I, I really enjoyed hearing it because I think that there are a lot of people who don't know how to really handle all of the aspects of grieving and there's like the funeral and I read that about four to six months after the loss is when some people experience peak grief and Mm. that is a time when most of their um close family or I mean co-workers friends you know they're not remembering you know all the things that you're going through throughout the rest of the year they're maybe there for you during the funeral or right afterwards if you Truly, if you're lucky, and and you know, then you move on, but you don't really, you know, you know, you know what it is that sparked that sadness, that moment, but you can't really get into the all that story. So you do have to put that face on, even if it's on Zoom. You know, you still have to be like, yeah, I, you know, and so I just think it's good for people to talk about it because everybody's going to be experiencing grief and you know everybody can do it differently and I, that's what I appreciate about what you said is how we're doing it to uh, care for ourselves in that moment so thank you very much oh, Re- Rebecca I send you all sympathy and hugs that you are really really going through a, a deep grief experience with so many losses they do tend to compound and you really bring up a very important point about the longer timelines of grief than simply the time of the loss. There really is a lot we could do to support one another um, in the, in the, what Hope Edelman, that word after grief is from a book by Hope Edelman that came out in 2020 that address, that discusses how great we live with grief over time and that it does, it changes and evolves, but it's, it doesn't disappear. Well, that, that's uh I think that's such an important reminder. And, and Rebecca, thank you for uh, sharing that, that deeply personal story. Um, very sorry for your loss, uh, your losses, really. Um, this, this notion of grief coming in waves, hitting us when we least expect it. I mean, I, I'm sure, Peg, there are days when you're sitting there, maybe you're walking Sadie, maybe you're uh, writing, and it's something just triggers a memory from out of nowhere. Um, how, how do you deal with that kind of unexpected wave of grief? Well, they, it does still come, actually, not so much. And but um, one example from my more recent life is um, my oldest son is married and has a child, so we became grandparents a year and a half ago. And the experience of being a grandmother has evoked different memories and different recollections and associations of my own grandma, my mom's mom, which ties into the, when my mom was ill and after her death. And, and so I, I had a, a, a weepy period, a weepy episode, um, not too long, earlier in the fall with my grand, just in relationship to being a grandmother. And I thought, oh, okay, I, I'm familiar enough with this now that it didn't, it didn't frighten me or, or upset me that I was upset. I thought, oh, well, I'm, I'm having this association and I feel this way. And it kind of just, I just was able to let it move through me. And that, that's real growth for me because I didn't get bogged down in self-recrimination of, oh, what's wrong with you? you this is 50 years ago now. It just, oh, it seemed natural. It seemed like, well, this happens. I know this. I can let it happen. And then, and that was that. It didn't have any, lingering after effects or anything scary it was just there and i i'm I, i'm glad for that 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 felt good yeah yeah that, that that's an interesting perspective peg when we when we're grateful for our grief i mean it it, it can be cathartic it can help us process things it can help us get to a deeper truth well, and we, we see often, I think on social media and it's but it's true that grief is a manifestation of love. And so why would we want to 
let go of love. We want to, we want to that to be part of us. Wow, that's such a great point. Help me, help me process this. Uh, you know, one one of the things that Rebecca was just talking about was you know, multiple uh, tragedies that we have to suffer through, uh, and it seems sometimes it seems unfair. You know, I know your your own mom, as you found, was grappling with. You know, she was a a young mother, a good Catholic, a wife. Why was she saddled with uh, with cancer? And you know, why are some people saddled with so much? Uh, pain and and tragedy in their lives and how do we grapple with it wow that is a very big question um i i don't know the answer to that so much i mean i i think we're all called it calls us all to be caring toward one another the recognition Mm. that that you know some people seem to suffer disproportionately from others and that that is certainly part of our awareness. And I think it, it really, in the best scenario, it calls us to show care and to acknowledge and, and be present to the, to our people who are suffering, especially people who are, who are grieving as Rebecca described. I mean, that, that is a severe um, situation to be confronting. That's a, that's a lot to absorb. Mm. Well, what what a what a wonderful opportunity then that grief gives us to to be more caring, to be more empathetic, to to reach out to people, and it, it's hard because grief in many ways is invisible. You know, we don't yes. necessarily know unless someone is you know kind of tearing at their hair. Like in, in, in ancient Greek texts, when the women would just kind of rend uh, their hair and clothes and everything. Well, of course, that's a very physical manifestation of grief. Uh, and, and there are people who go through that very physical process to get some of that pain out. But most of the time, w- whether we're behind a screen or whether we're putting on a face for someone because we think this is the way we ought to act, uh, grief is quite invisible. Yes, and we live in a culture that prefers it to be that way in general. I think I think that there have been some positive changes in our in society though. Even, you know, this is a con- example you have initiated this conversation which has given voice to to people's experiences and and there's much more discussion at, at least in the online space. There's a lot of opportunity to connect with people who are grieving and to access resources. Uh, for coping with grieving, a lot of books and authors and, you know, online groups, which is, is good. I mean, it's, it's changing the conversation that, uh, we can be more open about this. Well, Peg, I'm grateful that you are so open about it and have written so openly about it. Uh, the book is The Art of Reassembly, a memoir of early mother loss and after grief by Peg Conway. You can find it wherever you get books. Peg, thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. Whether we're prepared to face it or not, grief will come for all of us. And while it can be painful to deal with, the truth that comes from it can help us better understand ourselves and those around us. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.